Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Self-Assembly, a podcast where I, your host, Zach Kusan, embark on an endless journey of self-discovery to unpack the ever-evolving mystery that is life itself. This podcast is several things. It's a canvas for me to express my questions and curiosities about the nature of reality. It's a platform to connect with others who are interested in exploring similar types of ideas, but ultimately, it's just a good excuse to have some fun conversations with people that I admire. And for the next five episodes, we're going to be talking about a really fun subject, death! Um, I started recording these episodes about a year ago when we were still well within the throes of the pandemic. Little blips of normalcy started reintegrating back into our lives, but the trauma of what we had all been through and were continuing to experience was still very much at the forefront of the public consciousness. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C., and I'll never forget seeing the expansive fields of tiny white flags placed on the National Mall by the Washington Monument. Each flag represented a life lost to COVID-19. We had become accustomed to hearing the number of deaths on the news, but to see it visualized, that made it hit home just how many people were affected by this. You know, the the flags really didn't just represent one person. They represented families, friends, lovers, colleagues, so many other lives intertwined with each life lost. So many lives that would now have to continue this journey of being alive without that person. It was a sobering moment for me, and I found myself reflecting on how this thing we call death is such an integral, unavoidable aspect of the human experience, and yet so many of us seem wholly unprepared for it when we're forced to face its reality. Everyone grows old. Everyone's bodies eventually decay if we're lucky enough to make it to that point. So then why is it so hard to talk about? Why does it continue to rock us to our cores when we experience it? Why is there this expectation that we'll just carry on with our day-to-day lives with a smile and pretend that our hearts aren't desperately aching? Why is death so utterly terrifying? The next several episodes are going to explore these questions through interviews with people who have deeply intimate experiences with death. I promise that it's not going to be as heavy as it sounds, but I also won't mince words. This is meant to make you dig deep within yourself and really come to terms with the fact that one day, you and everyone you know will die. I think once we accept this integral aspect of our human experience, we can learn to be much more conscious about how we leave our bodies and how we can better facilitate that process for our loved ones. My first guest in the series is one of my very best friends, and he has a story about someone who faced the inevitability of death with a courage that most of us can only dream of having. They also made it their goal in life to help people age with grace and dignity. It's a truly beautiful story with a beautiful human being, and my hope is that this conversation will inspire you to not be so afraid of the great inevitability. Please welcome to the show, CJ Kelleher. CJ Kelleher, my friend, welcome to self-assembly thanks for being here man i appreciate you yeah thank you for asking me this is uh this is a first podcast for me so it's kind of fun awesome 
Well, yeah, hopefully we, uh, let's, let's get down to it, man. Um, so I brought you on here today. Uh, we're, we're having this conversation because you have a very, very unique job. You actually run an assisted living facility. And I thought maybe a really good place to start would just be kind of explaining to the audience what an assisted living facility actually is. Yeah, that's a good question. Because uh, most people think assisted living and nursing homes are the same thing. Uh, they basically just lump long-term care under the same umbrella, especially after this whole COVID situation with COVID spreading through uh, long-term care. So assisted living specifically for our residents is lighter care than a nursing home. So in general, our residents will be coming from uh, living by themselves. So typically they're living at home uh, or in an in-law apartment, um, maybe their spouse has passed and they are living by themselves with little social interaction. Uh, and typically when you're older and that starts happening, you stop forgetting, you, you start forgetting to take your meds properly. Um, your eating habits change. So those start to decline. Um, and then you have depression. Uh, so that starts creeping in. And when that creeps in, the older that you get, the faster things deteriorate. Uh, so a lot of residents come to our house, uh, the villager, basically to get help with daily tasks like their medications, um, laundry and housekeeping services. Uh, and really the biggest thing is interacting with residents that are their age. Uh, that's, that's one of the most significant things for assisted living is activities, social interaction, um, and making sure they're getting the right amount of nutrients and the correct medications. Uh, so a nursing home is more, people are more bedridden or they're in a wheelchair uh, or they need significant amount of supervision, like a nurse being there constantly to check on them. Um, we have a nurse that's on staff, but is only there on call for minor things. And so it sounds like it, it's sort of a, a place for people who need assistance, but aren't necessarily, it, it doesn't sound like it's it's a very clinical environment. It, it, it sounds like it's not really like a hospital. Um, can you, why is that different? Like, why does that make a, a big difference in someone's experience if they have to go into one of these long-term care facilities? Well, <clears throat> There's multiple stages of aging. So you have, uh, we can start with you're an adult and you're living with your significant other, uh, whether it's you know, your spouse or whatever, in your own home. And your kids have moved out of the house and then your spouse passes and you move into a smaller apartment by yourself. Uh, and at that point you, might need assisted living where you're no longer driving. So you're, you're losing your independence slowly as you get older. And 
part of that stage is assisted living, um, where you're you're slowly sort of losing parts of your independence as you get older. Yeah. And so, I mean, really, what you're you're sort of your clients, the people who you are are there to help. Yeah. A lot of them. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's all of them. They're approaching sort of the the final stages of their lives. Is that accurate? I would say their second to last stage for most of them. Uh, nursing homes are typically the last stage. Um, we've had a few instances where a, a few residents have passed at the villager, <clears throat> um, where in very in in certain circumstances if the family sees that this resident's possibly going to pass rather rather quickly and they've been at the villager for you know over 5 plus years and they're saying you know I really want my mom to pass at the villager um, we'll look into the possibility of hospice at the villager but for the most part i'm dealing with residents that are in between living independently and then at the last stage of their life in a nursing home, most likely. And so is that something that you keep in mind in your day to day? I mean, it's just, it, it seems like, I mean, for, I know for me personally, the sort of weight of that, of being kind of the person that's helping to facilitate this sort of major shift in, in their lives. I, I feel like that, that would be something that would weigh on me, me constantly. You know, is that something that you're kind of thinking about in, in how you go about your, your day to day? And just the fact that, oh, I'm, I'm essentially dealing with people who are getting ready to end this phase of existence, essentially. I, I don't look at it as much as the end of their existence. I look at it as when when this resident's moving into the villager, I understand they're losing a significant amount of their independence. And that happens to be close to the end of their life. But that doesn't mean that they are at death's door. Um, most of our residents are at the villager anywhere from uh, three years to our longest resident that was there for 18 years. Wow. Um, so <clears throat> it really depends. Uh, so most residents that come in, my, my day-to-day is trying to keep them as active as possible, um, and that's multifaceted. So that is physically active, um, emotionally active, uh, and mentally active. Those are the three things that I, I try to check on everyone day-to-day. Uh, we have different sort of levels of residence. Um, when I first started about nine years ago, assisted living in our home was your what your stereotypical thought of assisted living would be. Everyone was in their 80s and 90s. Um, a lot of people were using wheelchair, or not wheelchairs, uh, walkers. Um, your typical grandmother in your mind where, you know, they were physically a little bit more hampered things were a little slower uh i'm not sure why but the villagers become it's transformed into something else now uh we have residents that are in their 60s 70s 80s and 90s 
Uh, and now the vast majority of them are, are significantly more active than they were. So it's, it's keeping those residents independence as high as I possibly can make it. So they may not be able to drive anymore, but uh, I'll take the villager van out and I'll bring them to the Dollar Tree or Target uh, to go shopping, or um, I will push them to get outside and go for walks. Uh, we'll have parties uh, and trying to keep them as, as active as possible. That's really, that's my goal at the villager in general. What does being active do for a person? It's, I would argue, one of the most important things that a person can do, especially at an older age. Uh, how do I put this? Uh, so residents that are older, if they stop doing something, even for a short amount of time, there's a higher chance that they are going to lose that attribute. So uh, for instance, uh, my grandmother, she went into the hospital uh, when she was 84, very physically active. Um, she was in the hospital for about five days and acute setting in hospitals, they're not really looking to keep you active or keep you mobile. They're just trying to fix an acute small problem and push you out the door. Uh, so they did that with my grandmother. She was there for five days and she was basically in a bed for five days. The difference between her in that five day period was so significant that, you know, she had a hard time walking afterwards because, you know, your mm -hmm. muscles atrophy quickly as an older adult. Um, so with the residents doing daily exercise, um, daily puzzles, whether they be word puzzles or regular puzzles, um, continuous socialization is important. Um, just keeping people's minds active is important because they can lose it really fast. Yeah. And, and it sounds like it's, it's sort of what you really think about is the sort of the, the mind body connection in, in the activities that you're, you're having them participate in because, you know, it, it's this wonderful dance in, of health, right? Where you need a stable yeah. mind, you need a stable body. And they're, they're <clears throat> both so intrinsically linked there. Uh, yeah. The, the, the funny, the funny and very sad thing with most older people is you either you, you typically older people usually use lose one or the other they usually either lose their physical body or their mental body uh so a resident usually is super physical and and really strong and can and maneuver really well good up and down the stairs but they have dementia or that resident is their mind is still resolute and very active but their body is starting to slow down significantly. Um, very few residents that have both faculties, uh, but that also would mean that they probably would be living by themselves and wouldn't need that extra help. So it's when something like that starts, starts failing is when a resident would typically come to us. And when they do come to you, and, and pardon me if this comes off as, as slightly insensitive, but 
Is there an understanding of sort of why they're there, if that makes sense? It depends. Okay. Uh, it depends on it, case by case. Uh, some people, some residents that come understand their situation fully. They realize that they need more social interaction. They realize that they've been sitting in an apartment and may not have seen anyone for a full week and that they need that TLC from other people. They, they need that. Uh, there are other residents that come in and there's a lot of stubborn older people and they don't want to look at the reality of their situation, um, which is dangerous because their, their family will start making decisions for them. Um, so there's residents that come in there like, I don't need to be here. Um, I need, I, I'm perfectly fine where I was, uh, but they actually weren't. Um, the, the difficult part is having a resident come in the first one to three months for everyone is difficult because uh, you're moving into a new environment, you're dealing with new rules, and at the same time, you're dealing with less independence. So it, it's a struggle in the beginning. Um, some people are smooth transitions. Uh, that's not the norm. The norm is, you know, about a, a month to three months to get used to everything. Um, but once that happens, residents see that we're there just to help them. We're there to care for them. Uh, we're there to treat them like human beings, like adults, not like children. Um, so they have responsibilities that they need to keep up on their end. It's not just coming in and being pampered. You're not coming into a hotel, you know, you're coming into a home and you need to treat everyone with respect and everyone will treat you with respect. It's, it's a very, we try to keep it, it it's part of that independence factor. You know, you can't just be babied and, and all of this. So, you know, it, it takes a little bit of time. What do you think is going on there with, with the sort of the loss of independence sort of being so intrinsically tied to these these other kind of health indicators? I mean, you know, it, maybe it seems like an obvious question. It's just from the physical standpoint, it's just, you know, you need you need more help. Your body, your physical body doesn't work as well as it used to. And so you need mm -hmm. help. But I also think there's sort of this there's something that goes beyond just the physical. I think when you start talking about this loss of independence in old age and what it can do for just for lack of a better term, for a person's energy, for, for their literal spirit, if you will, you know, yeah, no, a spirit is a good way to put it. Uh, think about being in your home or your apartment, uh, being here in New Hampshire and being in my house, I need a car to get around. Think if you didn't have a car. That is one of the most difficult humps to get over for older people because that is a car is a symbolism of independence. Taking away that car takes away such a massive part of you. You don't realize it, I think, until you lose it. Um, and 
you have to sort of battle with your own mind to justify be like, okay, yes, I'm getting older. Uh, one of my favorite things that my grandmother used to tell me, and I, I would tell my, I'd ask my residents the same question and they'd all confirm this is she'd get up in the morning and go into the bathroom and look in the mirror and she'd be shocked at who she was seeing in the mirror. You know, every time, because regardless of your age, you could be 90 years old, your physical body, but your perception of yourself isn't a 90 year old person. Your perception of yourself could be you at 50, could be you at 60. Um, so there's a lot of, I don't even want to call it a delusion because it isn't, it's just a mind frame. It's a mindset and that mindset can help you and hurt you. Uh, there are people in their nineties that have an incredibly resolute mind and they stay mentally active and curious. And those people, I have a resident that's in their late nineties and this person just blows me away. Absolute conversationalist asks some really interesting questions, takes her sort of dementia, uh, with stride, you know, kind of laughs at it just because she's like, yeah, I, I'm in my late nineties. I'm not going to remember everything. It's fun. It's funny to her. Um, or you'll have someone that is trying to buck their own mind and they're saying, no, I'm perfectly fine. Uh, and that's, that can be dangerous to your own self. It's a difficult hurdle to get over. It sounds like, you know, acceptance is such a huge part of yes. how this experience is going to be for you. Ex acceptance and your perception of your own reality. Um, that is a very difficult, it's a difficult one for anyone at any age. Uh, but it, it starts confronting you faster and faster as you get older. Um, and are you going to be in front of it or is it going to be in front of you? That's, that is the difficult part. How do you even begin to assist someone that's struggling with that acceptance? Um, I, I'm still learning how to do it as well as my grandmother did. Um, there was this one person that this, this prospective resident had just moved in and this person had been there for maybe less than a week. And this person had moved from a senior apartment and felt like they didn't have to move to the villager and was really like, just like, I'm not going to stay here. I'm moving back there. Uh, you know, the daughter came in and my grandmother sat down with this resident and the daughter and I think my, my grandmother was really good at presenting truths to people and coming from someone else uh, my grandmother at the time was probably 82 was able to convey those truths to this resident for them to really, truly understand the situation. You know, it's not some 30 year old saying, look, this is where you're at. It's, it's an 82 year old talking to another 80 year old saying, you know, this is, this is where you're at. I, your, your daughter wants you to be in the best place possible. 
for where you're currently at because there's a there's a dangerous possibility that you could be staying at your apartment have an emergency have to go to the hospital and then no longer be physically or mentally viable to go to an assisted living you'll have to skip that and go straight to a nursing home and your quality of life will suffer significantly um it's really conveying that message to a person the way that you think they'll take it properly um, it depends on the person and their personality so some people you have to be very strong and hard and objective and others you just have to paint the truth lightly and so they can they can take their own steps to understand it so doing that takes what i can only imagine must be just it's such a an extreme amount of just empathy for for all sorts of 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 people like you have to really put yourself in their position in their mind truly empathize with that person see them as if they were you and understand how to how to communicate with that you know is that i mean do, do you feel like you're sort of a naturally empathic person and is that helping you or um, I think I'm naturally kind of a selfish person, to be honest. Oh, interesting. Uh, but in the setting of the villager, I and also being mentored by my grandmother. So, I and just was, for just for context, your your grandmother ran the, yes. the facility before you, correct? Yes, yeah. So my my grandmother, <clears throat> uh, real quick background: she started the villager in 1986. Uh, and before starting the villager, she was the head of social services at a county nursing home for 15 years. So she had the history and experience of seeing what a nursing home is like and moving that knowledge and expertise into assisted living and then doing it for 30 plus years. So she's really, she really ran the gambit as far as long-term care facilities in this country. Yes. Yes. And she, uh, so she got her, uh, master's in social work. She was a social worker by trade and she actually did her thesis on, uh, quality of life and death in nursing homes and saw that people that moved into nursing homes that didn't need to be in nursing homes died more quickly than someone that actually needed to be in a nursing home. Uh, she'd always say water seeks its own level. Uh, so a, a resident that really didn't need to be in a nursing home would go there because assisted living really wasn't a thing. They'd end up in a county nursing home and their quality of life would drop so dramatically that they'd lose all hope. And as an older person, if you lose all hope, you, you can actually die. God, how does, man, I, I'm, I'm just, I, right now what I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on it is just the fact that this is something that every, like every person is going to have to deal with, whether it's, you know, their parents or if you're, if you're lucky, you have to deal with it. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. If you're lucky yeah. enough to make it that if far, you're, if you're lucky, you have to deal with this, 
this difficult situation. But it is lucky if you can find the right place and if you make the right decisions. And so, like, how do you how do you make those decisions? I mean, it, you know, it sounds like it's. I'm just trying to think of having this conversation with my own parents, you know, Mm. while they're still in, you know, a place where they're, and you know, they're both healthy and and coherent still. They're not, they're not that old. (laughs) My my, my dad's going to be like, Hey, I'm not that fucking old. Um, (laughs) But, but, you know, to, to try to have these conversations while they're in a state of lucidity and they can actually think about, what they want, even, even having those conversations now is, is just so, so challenging. And frankly, it seems like, I mean, your, your facility sounds like it's, uh, sort of a a rarity, especially when you look at it in terms of like long care, long-term care facilities across the entire country. It's, you know, how many villagers are there where they have this very intentionally crafted experience where they can sort of move into these later stages of life with some semblance of grace, you know? Well, I'll start with the question on how to bring up the subject to, let's say, our parents. Uh, I think a lot of people look at planning for that stage of their life as planning to die. And I think they, sh- instead of looking at it as a plan on how to die, it should be a plan on how to keep the most amount of independence as you age. And with that independence means making your own decisions. Uh, a lot of people will wait too long and then have to have their family make a decision for them. And although you may have your, your kids may have the best intentions for you, you're still not making that decision on your own. So for instance, the easiest thing that I can think of is, is my grandmother. Obviously she had all of that expertise, all of that background. Um, and she saw all of the negative consequences of not making those decisions in nursing homes and at the villager and all of that. So what she would do is she was living by herself in a uh, 55 and older community. And she lived there for probably like 15 years, something like that. But the part that she started thinking about where she might need to move into the villager was very minor things. She uh, bringing her trash out. She was starting to have a little bit of difficulty with that. Like, okay, bringing her trash down to the end of the driveway, um, especially when it's icy out. When it's icier, if it's winter, she's like, okay, like I pay for this plow guy, which is fine. Um, but still, there were there were those little indicators that she was noticing. Um, she noticed that she just needed a little bit more help here and there. She was still incredibly independent, but before things started becoming drastic, she decided, okay, I'm going to sell this house. I'm going to use this house to bring it to the villager, bring that money to the villager and make my third floor apartment. Uh, the villager has three floors and she, 
converted the entire third floor apartment into her own apartment, which was great, and made it exactly the way that she wanted it. So she used that money to, to build her own oasis at the villager. So she made that decision. She was losing independence for sure, but she she lost her own independence her own way. Um, so th- there were those little changes that uh, she had. Uh, do you know Cold Springs? Cold Springs Campground? It's in yeah, where? Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, I, I think I've driven by it a handful of times. I, yeah. think, we, I think I went there with you once. But yeah, it's just like, a, it's like a summer campground thing, yes. right? Yeah. So it's, it's a summer campground and there's uh, like park models and whatnot. She had a seasonal park model there that she loved and she would spend a lot of the summers there. <clears throat> but she was living at the villager and that was her escape. She was like, okay, I need, I need an escape to get away. And she started using it less and less and then realized that the outside and the inside wasn't up to her standards. She wasn't keeping it up. And so she made the decision before her family had to step in. She made the decision to sell that. And she, some of the decisions that she's made at the villager blow me away, but they end up working. Uh, she took our shed at the villager and told me that I needed to get everything out. She got a company that moves houses to pick up the shed and move it to the backyard so it was facing the backyard, put French doors on it, um, had our contractor converted into a she shed with a chandelier, um, a Persian rug, heating and cooling, and that became her new escape. She knew that she couldn't travel seven miles down the road, and she knew that she was going to be losing her license soon. So she made the preemptive idea to say, okay, I'm going to have a harder time leaving this property. I want to make my own escape to this she shed. So I still have that feeling of independence, even though my independence circle has just gotten smaller. So those little steps are very important. You know, she made her own decisions literally until her last breath. And I think that's, that's a very, uh, that's something that I strive towards. And I think everyone should strive towards. And so when she's identifying these sort of markers of a deteriorating independence, what is her emotion around that? Uh, she, she was very, very objective. She didn't have a lot of uh, there was, she wasn't a crier. Uh, she was, she liked to, she called herself an optimistic realist. So she was always very realistic about a situation, but had an optimistic viewpoint. Um, so she would see her deterioration as a realistic thing that was happening, but then took that optimism and saying, okay, I can either just wallow in my own self-pity and wait until things get terrible, or I can see this as an opportunity to take control of of this deteriorating body and mind. And that's what she did every time. You know, she just took advantage of the situation and made her life her own. 
And so how did, I'm just, I'm curious about how you sort of became involved in, in the villager through your grandmother and, and sort of just, was this ever a path you imagined your life taking running the villager? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, uh, it really wasn't. Uh, I, it's, it's strange how life happens. You know, you, everything just seemed to fall in place. And then when you, when I started working at the villager, it just seemed so natural, but in general, uh, I grew up with a single mom and my mom worked quite a bit and worked late nights, uh, and traveled a lot. So, uh, during school, I would get dropped off at the villager and that would sort of be my daycare. Uh, while my mother was, you know, still working and she would pick me up at the villager. So I kind of, I grew up in that house, the villager, and I had literally like 16 grandparents at any given time. (laughs) So that was my childhood there. I I learned, I learned that house. I learned, I think subconsciously a lot about older people at that time. Um, During, you know, High school years, I wasn't there as much. Uh, and, and then I went down to school at Loyola, started in psychology. I was in that for like a year and a half, hated it, and started in business. And I really enjoy business classes. So I thought the easiest way to complete an internship was to intern at the Villager because it was in just a quick, easy in. So I started interning at the Villager during the summer. And at the time I was like, okay, this is going to be really easy for me to get an A and I can then just go in and and do my own thing after college. After college, I started working at the villager and I, the first two or three years I saw it as a resume builder. uh, So I could use it as a jumping point to jump to some other career. And the further and further I got into it, the more I I understood how special the villager was and, and how special this, this thing that my grandmother created um, for multiple reasons. Uh, you know, reasons as the villager being a unique place for these residents to live, uh, but also a very unique experience in controlling a business and making all of these decisions. Um, you know, I don't have anyone really telling me what I need to do. Um, it's terrifying, but also extremely gratifying uh, if you get it right. So, it, yeah, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> what was the no, question? that's fine. I just, I, I mean, I just wanted to know the story of, of how you became involved. In, you know, you. Um, oh yes, yeah, yeah. Because you know, you you know, you you ask people when they're you know. Uh, their later years of high school mm. what's your dream job or you know what do you what are you going to school for what do you what do you want your career to be and i, I would say running an assisted living facility is pretty <laughs> was, wasn't wasn't up there yeah it's, it's pretty low like the tallies are, yeah. are fairly low i'd say on that um but that that's such a, a beautiful story though you um i was i was particularly struck by you saying that you you grew up with like 16 grandparents and sort of the time you spent there, even though you were young and didn't really understand the the kind of wisdom that was being imparted on you, it, it sounds like that really kind of 
became part of the fiber of of your your being and and just and who you are it, it yeah it became natural it became a natural setting so uh, one thing that i try to instill with any new employee that's that's working at the villager it's something that i i hate when i see it is someone will come in and see a resident and treat them not as an adult they will treat them and baby them you know like come up behind someone and kiss them on the cheek and say, hi, honey, how, how are you doing? It's, it's demeaning. And that's something that person naturally, I, I never even thought of, but I, my grandmother would explain to me, be like, you know, people treat you differently as you age, they treat you as less of a person. And it's important in this household to treat everyone with respect because it demeans the person. It, it creates less of a person if you keep if you keep if you keep demeaning them. So you know you try to. I instill in all of my employees. You know never never treat these people like children. They're adults. They have significantly more wisdom than you do. Yes, their mind might be failing. Yes, their body might be failing a little bit. They're still people. And this is, this is not a, a nursing home, you know, they still have a lot of independence. Yeah, and I was thinking that that demeaning aspect of it, I, I'm, I'm trying to picture a more demeaning situation than being stuck in a bed, needles poked into you against your will, you know, just being stuck in this lifeless, clinical, sterile setting and and that's how that's how you depart this earth you know like that's I, i'm getting kind of worked up like thinking about it right now yeah it's i have only worked in a nursing home for a very short amount of time during college it was it's a very it, it the same thing depending on the nursing home i think some are really well run right and i should say um, that i if, if you if you work in a nursing home you are a, a saint like thank yep. you for and they, they do some in, they do some incredible work to keep these their residents as as active as possible and as as social as possible as their baseline is significantly higher than an assisted living right. so you work with your baseline of your of your staff and right, your residents right, right um so yeah it's it's a significantly different environment and one that my grandmother never wanted to go to um not because she didn't think nursing homes were a good place to go but that wasn't part of her plan of aging uh, it's interesting, you know, every personality is different. Some people go to nursing homes and thrive in certain aspects. It, it really depends. Um, it's just, yeah, you know, you, that, that circle of independence is just significantly narrowed in that setting. Which so. is why it's important to make sure that you are at least as that circle shrinks, you're at least uh, nourishing it and, and filling it with, with things that, you know, even though it physically may be smaller, it can still be lively and fulfilling, active and fulfilling. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. As long as you make, 
your life fulfilling in the the section that you're living in, the moment of time that you're living in, uh, it can be fulfilling. You know, just for my residents, being able to go and walk downtown to Sully's and buy something from the grocery store and walk back home is fulfilling. Uh, being able to participate in Wii Bowling and their team winning is fulfilling. Um, being able to connect with their family during COVID, that's fulfilling. Uh, you know, your, your terms of fulfillment change as you age. And, you know, older people, it's, it's, you know, your perspective changes. Your family becomes significantly more important. Um, but you can't see your family every single day. So you need to have an enriched life around that. And that's, that's what we try to do. Why do you think we are so bad at this? In like, I, I, I can only speak to America. I don't know how other countries are doing it, but it, it, it just, it doesn't seem like we've got, you know, dying <laughs> figured out really. And which is, is yeah. puzzling to me because we've been doing it for God, hundreds of millions of years as, as human beings, you know, it's something that we are doing, will continue to do, have done for hundreds of millions of years. Like I said, like, so what, what, yeah. Like, why is it such a challenge for us still? Why is it so hard for us to, to face these things and, and then just get ahead of them, but before they become giant issues? I think there are two parts to this question. There's the part of why can't we personally deal with death and what is the system around death? So I'll start with the system and I will, I'll use my, my grandmother's situation because it's the easiest to convey. Uh, <clears throat> my grandmother her mind was solidly intact until she passed away, um, which really helped because she, she was able to give an honest perspective of a, of a person aging to me constantly. She, we would, we would just sit down and she would, she would convey to me thoughts that were going through her mind and objective truths that she was feeling at that time. Um, and we talked a lot after she got out of the hospital. Uh, and she was, uh, she was really nervous about how hospitals had changed. Mm. Um, the way she experienced it was when she was in the hospital, it became a task oriented center. So, Someone would come in to her room. They would have a set of lists, a, a list of tasks that they had to complete. And the person wasn't important. The task was important. So they would come in, fulfill their duty, their tasks, and then leave. Mm. There was no concentration on the person's well-being. There was more concentration on 
fulfillment of the duty of the tasks recording the the numbers like making sure yeah, that uh, yeah going in uh making sure that that person i i'm not an expert at what needs to be done at a hospital but uh, the aide going in making sure that uh the person doesn't have uh soiled underwear making sure that they they hadn't you know passed anything um checking their blood sugar checking their blood pressure um, making sure that they're getting their medications at the right time, going in, checking off that box and leaving. And my grandmother was telling me, she's like, hospitals have changed and I don't know when they did, but it used to be person oriented. Um, in her thesis, I can't remember the person's name, but there was a big thing about having someone in a room that has a lot of light uh you want light was a big thing uh so at the villager we don't have any pull down curtains um that you can pull your shade down and make it completely black because that just broods depression um but yeah it became this this task oriented thing and i think i don't think it's necessarily the hospital's fault i think it's the healthcare system in general put so much fiscal pressure on hospitals that they have to use the least amount of staff to do the most amount of work. So when I was in, uh, I worked at a nursing home for a, a brief stint in college and I had to take care of, I think 18 people. So you have a certain amount of time and you need to go into a room check on certain things. Okay. Check, check, check. This is all done. Run to your next room, go to this next resident, check, check, check. Okay. Assist the nurse with this check, check, check. And you just be bouncing around on your shift. And I'm and, guessing that checklist doesn't have things like ask them how their day went, inquire yeah, about their family. Exactly. There's nothing like that. There's no interaction. There's no personal fulfillment. Um, so that was very eye-opening when she came back and she said, you know, I don't know what any other place is like, but we're doing something right here because, you know, we're focusing on the person. We're not focusing on the tasks. Uh, so that was, that was an eye-opening experience for me because I never saw it as a person-based to versus a task-based system. So I think talking about death, in a systematic way uh, with healthcare, we need to focus on a person-based system rather than a task-based system. Um, and that I think will help people age more gracefully and die more, more gracefully. Um, now, personally with death, I don't know, I, I guess we can only speak on an American perspective, uh, but, we are so driven to work and to not look at really anything else until we're forced to. And, and it's the same thing with talking about dealing with something when it's too late. You know, you're, you're dealing with a problem. You're reactionary rather than thinking forward. So we're, we're constantly reacting to things and you're, you're almost reacting to death. You're reacting to all of these 
significant changes rather than sitting down, thinking it through, seeing the writing on the wall before it smacks you in the face. Uh, I think that's the, that's the hardest thing we have. I mean, everyone has a difficult time with that. I do. I, I suck at a lot of that. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I think, um, so much of our value in our society is tied to what you do for work. What is it that you, we ask someone, what do you do? And we're not asking, you know, do you play guitar? Are you a stand-up comedian? Are you a, a painter? We're, we're asking like, nah, dude, what do you do to pay your fucking bills? Like that's mm-hmm. that's what I want to know. You you have so much of your identity tied to what your job is, and so I, I'm sure, you know, that coming to terms with the fact that uh, like you can't do as many jobs, you know, as as you used to. Right. It's like there's this sort of we have this fiercely independent spirit as American consumers. We have this this attitude of, you know, it's it's sort of like a remnant of manifest destiny. It's going after, you know, hyper individualism. You are a unique flower and you need to work for what you want in the world. But yeah, no one ever talks about like, okay, but, but for how long, like, you know, where's, where's the, where's the cutoff there? I mean, do you, do you find that, um, in some of the people that maybe are having a tougher time adjusting to sort of that, that lack of independence that we've been talking about, or am I just completely off? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I, you're not completely off. You know, with, with residents, it's, they are so far past their retirement age that their job or position is i would say insignificant Mm. that it doesn't they don't even think about it really i mean sometimes you'll you know i'll talk to residents and they'll be proud of their work that they did um but typically it's more they're just proud of their family Mm. um that's that's the big part of it um work is typically pretty insignificant at that stage of life. Cause you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, <laughs> we had a, uh, a resident that was in her early one hundreds. Holy shit. She, this person was on Medicare, uh, which I believe, I believe you go into Medicare with your like 55 or 65, something like that in like 1979. So this person probably retired back in the late seventies. So it's, it's so far removed. It's, it's, it's completely insignificant. Um, I forget what your, your beginning question was. I had a point and now I can't remember. Um, I was just going on some stupid anti-capitalist rant, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think, I think having, oh, oh, I remember. Uh, first off, I think having a job that you appreciate and that is fulfilling is a really important thing because it's what you do for 40 hours a week if you're lucky. Um, you want to wake up and most days be excited about what you're doing. 
because I think I, I really love being at the villager. I love being able to try to curate the best possible scenario for each and every resident that I have. Um, some days I wake up and I just don't want to do it and that's normal. But I think the really good days significantly outweigh the, the shitty days. Um, and regards, in regards to people having a job, my grandmother would always tell me that people that retire die. Um, and I, I think a lot of people have a false perspective on retirement. Uh, it's, it's funny. I, I can't remember who said this on some podcast, but it's very true. You know, you think of retirement as this goal, which it necessarily is. But what is your actual plan for retirement? A lot of people say, well, I'm just going to sit on the fucking beach and drink a margarita. And it's like, okay, that's, that's a, okay. That's yes. That's a realistic thing that you can do. How long can you do that for? You know, can you do that for a month? Take a month off, have a margarita, sit on the beach, get shit faced every day. That sounds fun. <laughs> um, but you do that for six months to a year and you're going to get depressed and you're going to end up dying. Uh, it's, it's incredible. I, my grandmother was, she found true fulfillment in work and working specifically to make the villager a better place. So she, she would semi-retire, but never actually really retired. She always wanted to be involved in the villager, involved in decisions, um, and involved in a very real way. Uh, especially when she lived at the villager, uh, we would have constant discussions on decisions that I was making that I was unsure of. And she would say, yeah, that happened to me like 15 years ago. And this is how I went about it. These are the mistakes that I think I made. And you can go about it however you'd like. You can fall flat on your face because there are things that I would buck. And I, she'd say, it's probably not going to work but I'd do it anyways, and it wouldn't work. Uh, but in general, I, you know, she, she worked until the day that she went to the hospital. Um, the day that she went to the hospital, she, uh, she came downstairs and started moving furniture. <laughs> and she started moving, she loved sort of adding chaos to the house um, by like moving, moving the house around, she would move the furniture, change the way the living room looked, change the way the dining room looked. She loved that. So she was coming down and, and moving the dining room around. I'm like, geez, what are you doing? Um, I called her Jeej. Uh, and she was just like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm doing what I want. I was like, all right, do your thing. <laughs> so she was moving furniture around, just running around the house. And that night I get a call from my staff member that my grandmother had called an ambulance to go to the hospital. Um, my grandmother was very anti-hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, so I knew that something was up. And I went to see her in the emergency room. And uh, she was telling me, she's like, oh, I, knew, I knew something was off. So I wanted to go out with the bang. She said, I wanted to work on the last day 
that I thought I might have. So I just went downstairs and did as much as I could because it felt like it was going to be the last day that I could do that. Oh my gosh. And it was technically. Um, so I know we're going back to the independence thing, but that was, that was a decision that she made and maybe that increased her chances of going to the hospital by a week or a month or something, but she made that decision on her own and she kept her quality of life at a hundred percent until she literally had to go to the hospital. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think it's important to have a fulfilling job because if you do, you're never going to want to quit. You're always going to want to push the boundary and understand your job from a different perspective as you age. And, you know, that gaining wisdom that you have and that gaining perspective, yes, you may not be able to physically do the things that you used to be able to do, but you can impart that significant wisdom and that significant perspective on your industry or on your job in a massive way. And it makes you motivated as you age rather than sitting on a beach and getting wasted. Um, when you started to realize that your, that Gigi's, uh, circle of independence was starting to close Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, she was sort of, um, this fiercely independent woman who had just been, you know, such a, a, a huge figure in your life. Uh, when you realized sort of, you know, when she came out of the hospital and you kind of realized, Oh, we're, we're, this is, it's different now, Mm. you know, uh, can you just talk me through emotionally what you were feeling during that time? Yeah. Uh, so there was, there was multiple stages. So we'll start at me meeting her at the hospital. Um, I met her at the emergency room and what was going on with her was her heart was kind of giving out. And so she would, her blood pressure was kind of all over the place. Her heart rate was all over the place. Um, and I met her out back and she was, I was in, you know, one of those like emergency department rooms that was kind of a room, but not really. Um, and I was talking with her and we're having a normal conversation. And then she sort of started staring off into space and I could tell that she wasn't really listening to me and her, her face got really red and then she closed her eyes and then woke up suddenly and on the machine that she was attached to, you know, with the, the heartbeat thing, it flatlined and then popped back up and then all these alarms started going off. And the nurses rushed in and she basically flatlined for a quick, you know, second or two and then popped back to life. Um, and though it was very emotional, um, but the crazy thing about it was she was able to explain the feeling that she was having afterwards because 
she came back and she was still the same person, but she had just flatlined briefly. Um, and she was like, yeah, I was talking with you. And then I just started seeing all of these colors and they were really beautiful. And then things kind of went dark real quick. And then I came back and she saw it like in that realistic perspective, not it. She wasn't emotional about it. She wasn't sad about it's it. Very she was really just like, yeah, very like, she was like curious about it. She was like, that was almost not fun, but she was just like, that was a really interesting experience. Wow. Um, and then I'm over there. Like I have to leave the room. Cause I'm like in such emotional distress. I'm like, okay, my, my grandmother's dying. Um, so I'm trying to keep it together and having a conversation with her while she's sitting there, you know, pleasantly describing possibly leaving this earth. Um, so she goes into the hospital and is there for five days. And when she's there for five days, she has IVs in both arms. So it doesn't allow her to really move in her bed. Um, she's not really able to turn around. She's, she's not able to get out of bed. She has to call the nurse to be able to use the bathroom. Um, and I saw something kind of scary. Uh, you see, when you see a resident that, or, or when you see a, an older person that's starting to lose their mental capacities, they start talking to themselves a lot. Um, and I remember coming to visit my grandmother in the hospital. This is maybe like day four. And she kind of, she was, she had her eyes closed and she was talking to herself. And I went in and I was like, are you, how are you doing? And she looked at me and she said, you need to get me out of here. I'm starting to lose my mind. And she was, she was starting to lose a lot of her mental faculties and she knew it. And she was scared. Mm. Um, and the doctors kept saying, well, she needs to stay here for a few more days, stay here for a few more days. Um, and she got a pacemaker put in um, to hopefully help with that, that heart rate that was collapsing. And on the fifth day- They uh, installed a pacemaker? How old was she? Yes. Yeah, uh, she was, well, so this was a voluntary thing. So my grandmother was, has always been against any sort of intrusive surgery. But we talked to her about it and she said, okay, if this can keep my quality of life at a, at the, at the pace that I want, mm. I will do this. So she did, which I was completely surprised about. I thought she was like going to completely just be like, no, I don't want the pacemaker and just go. But she decided to get it and recovering from that surgery, the doctors wanted her to stay in the hospital uh, on the fifth day. She talked to my mom and told her that she wanted to get out. Um, and the thing is, the hospital stay is a recommendation. It's not forced. Mm. You can leave the hospital whenever you want to. So my mom went in, said, we're discharging my, my grandmother and walked out with her. Brought her in a wheelchair out. You know, the nurse was saying it's not a good idea. Maybe it wasn't, but that's what she wanted. Mm. So we brought her back to the villager and she, we brought her back up to the third floor. Um, 
it was incredible seeing her mental capacity snap back to what it was before. Wow. Just being back in a familiar place and having a, just that little extra control over your life. She really got all of her mental capacity back. Um, physically she had a really difficult time. You know, I started helping her, uh, getting out of the chair and she'd go into a wheelchair or I'd help her walk to the bathroom, Mm. walk to certain areas. Um, but she was so happy. Mm. She was so happy that she was back in her apartment and regardless of her physical status, she was ecstatic. And that was what was important. Um, so there was a stage in between her coming back and hospice where I was trying to get her back to the quality of life that she wanted, Mm. which was working with uh, visiting nurses, physical therapy and occupational therapy. They'd come in, try to help with help work with her. Um, She had been losing weight for the past four or five years slowly and was very, very small. Um, but at, at this point she really wasn't eating that much. And so I was trying to make nutrient dense popsicles for her to keep that nutrition in her. Cause maybe that would help. Um, and it was my focus in emotional capacity was focused on keeping her alive and keeping her quality of life high. So I wasn't even really thinking about death at that point. Right. Um, she dropped a few hints that I kind of ignored. You know, she told me, she's like, you know, I'm, I can't live forever. Mm. Um, cause she clearly knew kind of where this was heading. Yeah, she definitely did. Yeah, of course. She knew, she knew where this was heading and she was willing to, She was willing to try for me, basically, and, and for her family. So there was that point where she was she was making an effort to stay alive, <clears throat> even though she knew that she kind of wasn't, and she had already accepted that fact, which in hindsight is very clear. But in that in that emotional status, you just You just don't see it. So uh, there was a point where she, I kind of realized that she was, she wanted to pass. And, you know, we talked about it and she's like, I want to go into hospice. Um, Hospice in general is one of the few things in the healthcare system that is a beautiful thing Mm. for the most part. you'll have aides that will come in and assist you in the dying process. Um, nurses that will come in that will assist you. And it's, it's a really great way to assist families to be there with their loved ones and actively help them die gracefully and, and, and in an environment that they want. Um, so, uh, 
we made she made that decision that she wanted to go into hospice and then it was really that the hospice process um my grandmother working in nursing homes saw how drastically people's quality of life would change and a lot of people couldn't cope with it and they just gave up on life um it, it just gave up in general which a very easy way to do that when you're older is to stop eating. Um, whether that is a an act of rebellion or mm. just an acceptance, mm. you can see it in two different perspectives. Um, she was already not eating a lot, and she just sort of started just refusing, be like, "No, nah, I really don't. I'm not hungry. I don't want that." Um, so we started that process in hospice where uh, it started slowly. I think it took four days or five days, but she started you know, losing mobility. <clears throat> um, they brought in like a hospital bed and I would at first she would stay in her recliner for most of the day. And then I would help her move to the wheelchair, to the bathroom, to use the bathroom back to her chair. Um, and then it, towards the end, it was just her in the hospital bed. Um, and there's hospice medicine that help people pass. Um, some of them are, uh, like, a Ativan or Lorazepam, which basically is an anti-anxiety drug that helps keep them calm. Uh, and then towards the end stages of life, there's morphine to help the process of dying, basically slowing down the breath mm. to where it ceases. Um, <clears throat> and my grandmother was always vehement vehemently i don't know how you say that word vehemently whatever vehemently yeah however you say it she was incredibly against taking any medications uh but it was it's really interesting how her she was so for any sort of hospice medication because she knew that it was helping her pass hmm. so she started taking the the lorazepam um probably two days before she passed and the night before she passed, uh, she was thankfully cognitively aware throughout this entire process. Um, the night before that she passed, she, her, her physical body was so worn out. Mm -hmm. um, she could really only talk in brief sentences and kind of in a whisper. Um, but I sat there and talked with her and, you know, I had a feeling that this could be the last night that she, or last day or last days that she was going to be alive. And I asked her if she wanted me to give her the morphine. Um, and she asked me, you know, will this, do you think it will make it, it go faster? Do you think it will help? I said, yeah, I, I think it will. And she said, okay, I want to take the morphine. Um, so I, I gave her the, the morphine droplets, I believe. And, uh, the next morning 
she, uh, my mom came and was watching her while I was working downstairs at the villager. Um, and my mom also you know, being around the villager a little bit and knowing my grandmother and being in, in around nursing homes, when someone dies for some reason, there's almost like a rattle in their breath. Hmm. Um, it's called a death rattle. And it's not like a significant thing. You just, you hear this slight rattle. Hmm. Um, my mom heard it and asked me if I wanted to come upstairs. So I came upstairs and we were both able to witness her last breath, um, which was a, a great thing. It was obviously emotional, but it felt really good knowing that she was able to make every single decision that she wanted to throughout her life, especially the end of her life, the way that she wanted to do it. Um, because looking back at it now, I, I know my grandmother probably could have, she probably could still be alive right now. Um, she probably would have had to move to a nursing home and had significantly decreased mobility possibly decreased mental status. Um, and she knew she didn't want to go out like that. So she made that conscious decision. Um, the day before that she died, she really liked chai lattes. So she asked for a sip of a chai latte and that was the last thing that she put in her body. Um, yeah. So I, it was, it was a very proud moment for my mom and I, because we were able to help her make those final decisions the way that she wanted them. Wow. Yeah. She, I mean, so few people get to do that. And, and so few people I think also have the, the understanding from the, the rest of their family to kind of support them in that you Thankfully, know we have a small family because the larger your family the muddier it gets yeah which is why i mean you know her her being proactive about this and and communicating this to you and and your mom and i'm sure to others just mm -hmm. and really taking charge of it it lifted a lot of burden a lot of the burden off of you and your mom. Yes, it, it lifted a lot of burden and she was able to keep her quality of life significantly higher until she died because she was able to control every situation. She understood that she was losing control, but she was able to hold on to that smaller circle of control and independence as she died. Yeah. Do you think that it was easier. Easier is not the right word at all. I'm going to say that. <laughs> I'm going to put that qualifier there. But do you think it was easier this way than if she had tried to kind of continue on and, and keep her physical body just there as long as possible? Yeah, absolutely. It's it would have been so much more difficult, uh, especially with COVID. Yeah. You know, if she would have moved out of the villager 
and moved into a nursing home, there would have been an there would have been that that time frame where we wouldn't have been able to see her. Possibly her getting COVID and dying, um, having an outbreak at some sort of facility, and you know she died January of 2020, and so we were able to have a full funeral, a get together of family and friends to celebrate her life, celebrate her achievements. Um, and you know, we, that we wouldn't have been able to do that, mm. you know, if, if she would have passed any time in the past year. So I, it's, it's something I'm really proud of her for. Do you think about sort of where she is now? Do you have anything that you kind of envision? Uh, not, not necessarily anything that I envision. Uh, she had faith in God and it wasn't a, uh, she didn't really go to church. She wasn't really a, wasn't a Bible thumper at all, but just had faith. Uh, she, she, I, I never wanted to believe her in this, especially when I felt like I was an atheist. Uh, she told me that she saw a lot of people pass away at nursing homes and she swears that she saw something come out of somebody and depart when they passed. And she felt like she saw that person's spirit leave their body. Um, and for my grandmother to say that is very uncharacteristic of her because she was very realistic, very, very grounded. And for her to explain that to me, I was like, I, I can't even, I just wasn't even ready to even think about that. Sure. Um, so I think whether whether there is this utopian oasis in the sky or not, I think mentally she had a fulfilling life and the way that she passed was fulfilling and gratifying. So either she's in a really great place uh, that you could call heaven or she fill, she, she lived an extremely full and truthful life that even if there isn't a heaven, it doesn't really matter. So CJ, um, where, where are you going from here, man? You got, um, you have just like, but I told you this in kind of like our, our, our conversation before we recorded the show. Um, but to me, you are, you're almost like, I mean, this is just me applying my own sort of philosophical, spiritual mumbo jumbo over it. But you, mm. you know, to me, you really do seem like you are like a shepherd of spirit. Uh, you know, anyone who knows me uh, knows that I, I definitely think about these sort of non-physical elements of existence I think that there's a lot to be learned 
once someone does die and certainly goes to wherever that is. Um, and I just have so much respect and admiration for you choosing this journey for your life and being a person that is shepherding people to whatever it is that, that lies beyond. Um, and so I'm just curious kind of what is it that you hope to continue to do? You're, you're 30 years young, 31. Are you 31 yet? 31. Dang. We're getting 30, you know, sunk. 31 felt weirder than 30. I can see that actually. Yeah. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> but you're still point being, 30s. point being God willing, unless yeah. something catastrophic happens, you have many more years on this earth. Where do you see yourself? And how do you see yourself sort of um, interfacing with this extremely important aspect of society? I, I see myself attached to the villager for the foreseeable future um, in, a, in a positive way. Um, I think... COVID taught, taught me a lot. Uh, we were thankfully able to uh, not have an outbreak at the Villager um, and get all of our residents and all of our staff fully vaccinated, um, which was huge. But it, that taught me, it was, a, it was an extremely important lesson on really focusing on my residents and my residents only mm. and looking at each individual, especially throughout this pandemic and saying, okay, we have this outside realistic virus that if it enters this building could kill people um, and could just drastically change their lives. So the first part was keeping everyone safe, making sure that everyone got tested, all that stuff. You have that shell. But then inside that shell, you now have 16 people that you need to keep as active as possible. And that means mentally, physically, emotionally. So it really forced me to try and keep those residents as elevated as possible. Mm. Uh, and that was, it was, a, it was an incredible experience. Um, there was a lot of fear when this began, especially in this, in, in long-term care in general. So a lot of places and a lot of guidelines were put in under that fear um, where, okay, residents have to stay in their rooms quarantined for the fear that they will get it. So they can't leave their rooms. They can't eat in communal dining. They have to eat, um, you know, socially distanced. But before that, it wasn't even socially distanced. They have to Stay. eat in their rooms yeah. oh, at, at all costs. And like we discussed with my grandmother and whatnot, if, if you're stuck in a room like that, even for two weeks, and you're that age, your mental capacity starts shifting rapidly. Your physical capacity starts shifting. So 
we're dealing with a pandemic, but you're also dealing with these residents' quality of life. Mm. So there were decisions that I had to make to make to be like, okay, yes, we have this risk. We also have their quality of life. So we had to use a lot of common sense to keep them as active as possible. So it forced me to focus on activities, uh, focus on, um, we typically have bands that would come and play inside the villager and we'd have parties and dance parties, uh, which the residents love, like, uh, older people love polka dancing. So we get like polka bands and Oktoberfests, all that thing. Obviously we couldn't have the band come in the house. So I had the band come play outside in the gazebo and I rented a wedding tent for the residents and staff to be under. And we danced outside mm. in July. And then we had an Oktoberfest in September while it was still nice out. Um, and those were events for people to look forward to that kept their spirit up and their mental well-being up. Um, I started, uh, it's something that I, I'm not going to stop doing because they like it so much. Um, I started bringing my residents out in our villager van. Um, we would go drive. Literally, I try to get lost. So we'd, I'd take eight people in the van and I'd go try to get lost. I go down dirt roads. I, I've, we've literally covered every single road, I think in like a 20 mile radius, but it was an opportunity to get out of the house and have fun and experience the outside world without actually having to be connected with people with that, the threat of the virus. Um, and it was not only mentally good for them, but it was, it was mentally great for me too. Um, cause all of us have been stuck in our homes and I, it's interesting what you, it's interesting what their generation had in quality of life when they were young that we're missing now. Um, hmm. and one of them was they used to go around just for drives all the time. They didn't have a lot of money. So they would go out with their boyfriend or whatnot and just go drive around and try to get lost and, and go find a new area. And it, it's incredibly fulfilling. It's a lot of fun and it's, it's almost free. It just costs the amount of gas. Um, so. Got to be careful. The way you I do see... that around DC. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt that. Don't want to get too lost. But, in DC. <laughs> but New Hampshire, it's, it's beautiful. You know, we, <laughs> We went down some roads. I, I brought them down like the craziest dirt roads possible. And we would find these, we would, we would climb up this dirt road and see this beautiful view mm. of Boston and Deering and Candia. Um, we'd go to state parks, um, drive around in state parks. Uh, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. And it was, it was significantly fulfilling for their mental well-being. That was that was yeah. a big part of their mental well-being every week getting, getting out and seeing that new looking forward to that that outing. Yeah. Even though they weren't really getting out. Mm. Um so going forward I I want to continue to focus on making the villager 
one of the best places that I, I, I possibly can. And, and that means continuously pushing my staff to be at a certain excellence where they keep the house at the highest rate that they possibly can. It needs to be clean. It needs to be safe. They need to be interacting with the residents uh, constantly. They need to be engaging with residents and, and keeping social activities going um, while doing their job. It's a lot to ask for, but it's fulfilling and it's worth it. Uh, and, and keeping the residents happy. Um, and that's not just me making them happy. Uh, something my, my grandmother told me is never look to someone else to make you happy because it's never going to work. You always have to look at yourself. You always have to make yourself happy no matter what. And so I'm there to help my residents be happy, but they have to find happiness with themselves. So I try to, I try to give them sort of lines to grab onto yeah. and to help fulfill their life in any capacity that I can. And so that's, that's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on, I want to change the way assisted living is perceived and experienced. And I don't think you can do that at a place that has 300 beds. I think you can only do it at a place where you can individually know each resident in and out, and they can know each staff member in and out, and you can try to focus on each person individually and then as a communal group. And we just kind of have to make that decision as a functioning society that that is something that we need to invest more in. Because, person oriented care yeah not task oriented care but that's i think the fundamental change that needs to happen yeah um and that's not just being nice to people that is working on making people happy and helping them gain their own independence as much as they can have. And it's it's so interesting too because that applies to that applies outside of just this spectrum of of aging. You know, it's there's um I was listening to a podcast and they told a story about this uh surgeon who just had these his patients were just recovering so much faster than than anyone else's patients and they had no idea what was going on and then they asked him they said doctor like what do you what are you doing what you're you're a miracle worker how are your patients healing so quickly and his literal response was just like i'm just checking in on them i'm i'm just talking to them and asking them how their day is going and just treating as you said treating them as a person I, yep. i'm not they are not just part of my job they are a human being with a family and dreams and fears and and all of this kind of stuff that we all share but for whatever reason seems to get so lost in just the chaos of our healthcare system now certainly um i have one final question for you and then i'll, I'll let you go um <laughs> just if i am 
how can I, um, or anyone really, what would you say is the most important thing to do to make sure that this process of aging is not this aging and really, and really dying. What can we do? Um, if our, if it's happening to our loved ones or if it's happening to ourselves, what do you think is just the most important thing to do to sort of mitigate all the challenges that come with that process? I think the most important thing that you can do with yourself and especially with your, your loved ones, especially obviously your parents, your grandparents is to be honest with them and realistic in a loving way, you know, explain to them that, that you are, you are there for them and that you truly care for them and love them. But you need to try to explain a realistic situation to them mm. and explain that they are going through a process that we are all inevitably going to go through. And you have the choice now to start making decisions that are going to make this aging process better or worse. And if you want to start making those decisions, um, especially if you're talking with your parents or your grandparents, you know, you can say, like, I will be there for you no matter what. Mm. Um, I will be there for you, helping you with those decisions. But those are, they have to be your decisions. I don't want to have to be able to, I don't want to have to make a decision for you or have the state make a decision for you if it gets that bad. You know, you need to try to take control of your own life to make sure that you don't, you can hold on to as much independence as you have at any given point in this aging process. So I think it's, it's really sitting down with your loved ones and being as honest as you can and, and sitting down and making sure that you, you create that honest environment. It, it's so difficult to have an honest environment with your with your parents, um, I think specifically, because it's, there's a lot of, there's, there's tension, there's, there's history, um, and there's things that aren't talked about. Um, and I, I think if you can just create an honest environment, it doesn't have to be a continuously honest environment. I think that's not realistic, but creating a conversation where there's an honest environment that you're honest with them and they're honest with you in a loving way. You know, I want to see, I want the best for you. And I want you to make those decisions on your own. CJ, you are an incredible human being, man. You have, <laughs> you are such a positive influence on so many people beyond just your residents and their family. Um, I, I think what you're doing is is sending ripples throughout our our current reality. And I just I really hope to see the seeds of what you are are sowing. I, I really cannot wait to see 
what they're going to flower into because it's just I think the stuff you're talking about and the work that you're doing is just so vital for how humanity moves forward, especially given everything that we've been through this past year. Um, Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I hope that you can only do as much in your little circle as you can. And, and I, my hope is that I can at any given time make these 16 residents that I'm caring for as happy and as independent as possible. And I think that's whatever environment you're in, focusing on that small group that you are part of and, and pushing that forward in a positive manner, in a truthful manner. Beautiful, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no, was, thanks uh, for having me. That was fun. It was, was really good. brave of you. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, we will we'll catch you on the next one. Love you, man. Wonderful. Talk soon. Love you too. That was CJ Kelleher, everyone. Thank you so, so very much to him again for being so open and just willing to share his experience with you all. Uh, if you're digging the podcast, please consider subscribing on whatever platform you're using to listen to this and also give us a follow on Instagram at selfassemblypod. That's selfassemblypod. But if you don't feel like doing that, it's cool. I'm just super stoked that you listened. We'll be back in a couple weeks with our second conversation on death. Until then, stay safe, stay beautiful, and radiate love to as many people as possible. You never know what might happen. Catch you next time, y'all.